It was only a couple of months after buses of migrants began arriving in Chicago last summer that local shelters reached capacity. And this housing problem continues. As the city scrambles to provide shelter, some community groups and individuals are taking matters into their own hands and homes. We're joined now by two of those women who are working on the ground to support asylum seekers and refugees. Dr. Evelyn Figueroa is the director of Pilsen Food Pantry. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Good morning, Sasha. And Jen Durham is a volunteer with neighborhood welcome group Nuevos Vecinos. Hi, Jen. Good morning. We also have Chicago Sun-Times social justice reporter Elvia Malagon, who's been covering this story very closely. Welcome back, Elvia. Thank you so much. So I'll start with you. Give us a a broad picture, Elvia, of what is happening right now in Chicago with migrant housing and shelter. Yeah, I started to hear from community groups earlier this year, stories of them scrambling to find a place for them to live um, or to even temporarily stay. There were stories of people staying in hospital waiting rooms, people staying in the police stations, um, other kind of just hallways, people making makeshift places for um, people to stay temporarily. So that kind of prompted me to start to look at this issue a little bit more. We were also hearing from officials in some of those community meetings surrounding the Wadsworth property on the south side. Um, Officials were emphasizing during those contentious meetings that the need for housing was very urgent. Mm. Why is there an issue finding enough housing? Well, it seems like the issue is there just aren't enough shelter spaces um, or shelter beds, rather. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I think there's sort of a limited amount. And then on top of that, there's just been a really big wave of immigrants who have been coming who are in need of these spaces. And from what we were able to obtain through FOIA of um, emails of officials, we saw that in November, so about two months after the buses started coming, that there was already a call of officials saying, we don't have any spaces, we're going to have to redirect people to shelters that are not funded by the city. And Dr. Figueroa, I mean, we've heard a lot of talk around that former Woodlawn Elementary School Um, being converted into this shelter for single men and women. I understand that even with that and with their doors opening, it's still not enough, right? Right. My understanding is the Woodlawn uh, facility would support 250 guests. So it's it's definitely... Very, very, very short of the... Sounds like nowhere near enough. Yeah, five to 7,000 people that have come to Chicago. Um, the, other, the other thing to keep in mind is that um, Elvia was mentioning that it has been a, it's, it's a problem that we don't have uh, beds for folks, but it's also how we utilize the space, right? Um, we, there are a lot of empty spaces in Chicago. It's, it's whether we decide that this is a problem worth solving or not solving. The Woodlawn property really brings up a lot of the issues that a community has when we start to rally around supporting others because it, it turned into a very othering issue. Jen, tell us about the group that you work with, uh, Nuevos Vecinos. It's a, a neighborhood welcome group. So tell us what they do and, and how you've been working with the migrants exactly. Sure. So Nuevos Vecinos is working out of a uh, store p- store space on Devon in Westridge, Rogers Park area. Okay. Um, it started with the group's founder. Um, she saw that there was a need. People were coming to her church space. It's actually a church space. Um 
And so she started hosting a free store to help clothe those that were arriving, mostly in shorts, sandals, no socks, in summer clothes because they had just come all the way from Venezuela to the southern border. Um, So this was last fall. And then since then, we've provided coats, clothing to mostly adult men. But then more recently, there's been a lot of families that have come in and providing all the clothes they need um, to get by. We've had over 1,200 migrants and asylum seekers come through oh, so wow. far. Yeah, Started as a free store, though, but has evolved to help provide services, additional social services that are needed. We find that there's a grief se- there's a grief session each week to help people process some of their trauma. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, just medical care that people need um, when they are lucky, lucky enough to have a home, helping to furnish that home. But then also providing venture cards for transportation because they might be placed at a, at a shelter on the far, far south side. And even getting back to a grief session where they've built a community on the north side mm-hmm. is a challenge. This is also a, a sobering reminder of how layered this issue is, right? We're talking about housing today, but there are so many things that these people are lacking. I'm curious about the grief sessions, Jen. What do they look like? Um, so I'm not involved just because... Uh, I'm not. I'm not a pastor. It's, it's mostly run by the pastor. Right, and you're volunteering. Yeah. yeah. So the free store, um, we host. It's convenient to host a free sh- the have the free store open just before the grief session because people are. That's a natural place where they're coming in, so they don't have to make a separate trip. Um, but my understanding is it's they're kind of positioned supporting each other, um, building community with other migrants by having circles and sharing the gotcha, sharing their grief and supporting each other. Elvia, one of the Chicagoans that you featured in your most recent piece is Evanston resident Kristen Hussar. Uh, She's literally taken things into her own hands, her own home, really, right? How have things been for her and and the family since since they moved in? Because I hear now she's got a couple of boys running around her house. Yeah, that's correct. Um, It's pretty crowded in there. Um, But Kristen has been part of this group um, that has sort of taken on helping this wave of crisis that have come to Chicago. So she originally volunteered and helped a Afghan family that resettled in this area. And so through that work, she sort of continued and um, kept working at the free store and bringing in donations when she could. And it was in one of those um, sessions that she came in January that she heard that there was this family of four that couldn't get any shelter space that was basically just like sleeping at a police station, sleeping where they could. Mm -hmm. And she said that just she didn't even really think about it, didn't really talk about it. She just said, I'll take them in. Mm. And so what she did was she had a spare bedroom in her house and she rearranged everything. And the family of four, it's a husband and wife and two young children. Um, They're living with her for now. And she anticipates that They'll be there for a couple of months because the boys just started school um, in Evanston and she wants them to at least try to finish this school year and with the hopes of them finding a more permanent housing. And she's developed a team of volunteers who are trying to basically navigate how they're going to work here, how they're going to live here. Um, what does their immigration case look like? What will that entail? Um, so in a way, she's kind of like, develop this one-stop shop of social services for this family. 
Wow. So, Jen, Dr. Figueroa, have you, have you heard stories similar to Kristen's since folks have been arriving last year? Like someone's opening their doors. Absolutely. Bringing them in and saying, hey, you get to live with us now and we'll Absol- help you adjust. Absolutely. So in September, when um, when when the, the South Border migrants started arriving, we started doing a lot of collections at the Pilsen Food Pantry and our alderman, uh, Alderman Cicho Lopez, tried to get us to get uh, emergency funding to from the city to convert into a shelter. But, you know, you have to have showers. There are a lot of infrastructural things you have to have. And and just like um, just like the uh, family that Elvia was just talking about, when you're a person trying to open your doors, you're opening your doors without the capacity. You haven't built that capacity. And kind of the reason you're doing it is because you you are relentless and you don't take no for an answer. Mm-hmm. But the resources really are limited. For the Pilsen Food Pantry, we're running a pantry. Grants are very specific for food. And how many people are you serving? We serve uh, an average of 410 uh, households a week. Who's eligible for uh, for food and meals? Anyone. Anyone who comes, we have no uh, zip code restriction. We're open Monday through Friday. We've had a clothing program for nearly three years. We also do free physical therapy, um, register kids for Head Start, provide school supplies, other literacy services. So you're already spread out very, very, very thinly. And we're because we're on the Lower West Side, we're serving a ton of immigrants. Almost everyone that we serve is, is an immigrant, but they've been there for a while, which is different. Once you're once you're throwing into you're throwing the wrench in of a newly arrived migrant, mm-hmm. um, really navigating all the nuances of that person's immigration story is incredibly challenging. Are you also feeling the weight of rising food prices? Absolutely, um, absolutely. We um, a year ago we used to spend out of our own pocket uh, two hundred dollars a week for uh, for food. Um, we now spend uh, 750 just out of our like targeted campaigns. We have another donor that gives us uh, $500. Uh, we process 25,000 pounds of food a week. So buying produce uh, when we waste food all the time in the world is very frustrating. Uh, food insecurity is really a problem with the solution, and we're literally around the corner from the international produce market that doesn't. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. As migrants continue to arrive in Chicago, shelters have reached capacity. And Chicagoans are working together to find other places for them to stay. We're joined by Nuevos Vecinos volunteer Jen Durham, Evelyn Figueroa of Pilsen Food Pantry, and Chicago Sun-Times reporter Elvia Malagon. Elvia, you reported Mayor Lightfoot initially asked the state for $53.5 million in aid, but uh, the city's actually going to be getting $20 million (laughs) instead. This money is going to help fund things like shelter, like basic health and transportation and food, all the things that we've been talking about. But is $20 million enough? That I'm not sure, and I'm sure (laughs) other people here will probably say no, Um, just because uh, the city had asked for more, and the state is also doing their own program as well, Um, and they're actually in the process of transitioning people from the hotel um, spaces into their turning a Kmart Mm -hmm. into a new housing facility. So I think people, the situation is fluid, and people are trying all these different avenues um, in Little Village, there's a community group that they're sort of creating their own makeshift shelter for the time being. So I think people are just figuring trying, it out. Yeah, figuring it figuring out, it essentially. Out. Jen, I mean, so the city's getting just less than half of what Lightfoot was asking for. Even without that extra funding, though, are, are there things that you think that the city could still do to help support folks who are both doing the work and the migrants themselves? 
this is this is bigger than a problem within the city, but um, one of the things that's a big frustration is these people want to work, but they're not legally able to work. If um, those that are seeking asylum, they have valid asylum claims, first they need to have an attorney actually file that case. That case takes a lot of time. They have up to one year after arrival before they need to have it filed. So in order to give a legal attorney time to actually make a valid case, that takes you have to give that time. And even beyond that, then they have to wait 150 days to actually apply for a work author, for work authorization. And then right now, the average time processing time for the work authorization application is five to seven months. So we're mm. looking at a year beyond when they've actually filed for asylum. And that's a long process. It is. And that's yeah. a long time to be relying on volunteers and on the city for s- s- public funding when these people want to work, there are jobs available, but they legally can't do it. Dr. Figueroa, are, are there other factors playing a role in this larger issue of this lack of resources than just funding? Is it just money? No, uh, language, language proficiency, um, the legal assistance that Ms. Durham just mentioned is important. That costs something. Mm-hmm. So you can, get a, you can get a pro bono general session that gives advice, but it, it's not uncommon for, um, for an asylum attorney that's doing things at rock bottom prices to still rack up a six, seven, $8,000 bill. Um, yeah. Where are people going to get that funding? There are micro grants, but not for that. That type of funding. So to help people navigate through the system, they have to be able to speak the language. I've looked at those asylum papers. They're all in English. Mm. So you need accompaniment just to just to understand what you're signing. It's very strict. The system just understanding that process and that you once you have those parole papers that you do not pass go, you do not skip, you do everything that's required, and that any infraction for someone who's coming in for asylum um, is considered felony. And cause for deportation. So if someone wow. is desperate and tries to work under the table and they're discovered, um, even though we need employees in Chicago, they will be deported. Elvia, are, are migrants continuing to arrive in the city at a steady pace or have we seen things slow down a bit? We do know that people are still arriving, but from what I've heard is that it's not um, as large. Like, of- is it still the bus loads that we were seeing last year? I don't think it's as big as... Um, as it was in the fall. And there are some changes that are happening actually across the country. Asylum entirely is changing um, or will be changing soon. So there are some other things that on the national level might impact how many people end up coming here. And real quick, before we let you go, Dr. Figueroa, what should our listeners know if they want to help? Work locally. There are groups all over the place that are helping Um, Reach out in your community, Google the name of your neighborhood and write refugee, immigration, uh, homelessness, and reach out to that group and figure out how you can help. If you can't help um, physically, then please donate. We we need people to drive things around. We need people to accompany folks. Uh, We need supplies, et cetera, and we really appreciate that consideration. Dr. Evelyn Figueroa is the director of Pilsen Food Pantry. Elvia Malagon is a social justice and wage gap reporter for the Chicago Sun-Times. And Jen Durham is a volunteer with neighborhood welcome group Nuevos Vecinos. Thank you all so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you. All right, let's turn our focus now to how asylum seekers and their children 
are navigating education in Chicago. Yo veo con mi ojito pequeño algo rosa. That is the voice of nine-year-old Juanito playing I Spy with WBEZ education reporter Nareda Moreno as he waits for his mom to pick him up from his Northside bilingual school. Nareda's here with us right now to tell us about her latest story about an Ecuadorian family who traveled thousands of miles on foot to Chicago. Hey, Nareda. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for being here. So your story, super interesting. It features a mother, Ana, and a nine-year-old son, Juanito, who they went on this long journey to get here to Chicago. And just as clarification, WBEZ is withholding their real names and their school name due to safety concerns. So Juanito's mother, Ana, talked to you about all the countries that they had traveled through. So just talk to us about what the family had to go through to get here. What a journey, it sounds like. Yes. So they've been here in Chicago for about two months now. Uh, They left Ecuador in October. Um, It's sort of a a common story, right, that they faced uh, threats, of violence from a local cartel back home. And so they decided to make this really dangerous uh, journey up north. Um, it started in a rainforest, um, continued north through seven countries. Um, and now that they're here, or once they got to the border, actually, um, a lot of migrants are being bused here from states, but they actually got here uh, via plane. And it was incredible because they met a stranger at like a local Walmart that they had stopped at uh, to oh stretch goodness. their legs. And um, this person just saw that they were in distress and said, hey, let me buy your plane ticket. Where do you need to go? Um, wow. And they chose Chicago because they had met people sort of along the way that were also headed here. So. My goodness. Juanito is now going to a Northside bilingual school, as I mentioned. This isn't usually the case, though, for, for kids of, of migrant arrivals, right? Well, so the district says that it's um, working with the city and the state to enroll kids in schools that are located near shelters. And so often those are neighborhood schools. Um, Juanito is very lucky in the sense that his his dual language school offers, you know, uh, reading, uh, writing, all of these resources in Spanish. Like okay. they're they're well equip, equipped to to serve these kids. But, yeah, it's not really um, from what we're hearing from teachers and from parents and, you know, all these other employees um, that that isn't really the most common situation. And how is little Juanita doing in school Oh, he's he's thriving. Yeah, he likes no, it. I I got to hang out with him for a little bit after school one day, and yeah, he's he's doing great. I mean, he's making friends. He's learning English. Um, he can point out all you know all the administrators. He's like, oh, that's the principal. That's my friend. That's, oh, nice. You know, whoever. Um, yeah. So it's 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 a good situation. For Starting him. to feel welcomed. It sounds like yes. So. Um, speaking of welcoming, I mean, Chicago's welcomed more than five thousand new arrivals since August, right? Uh, so we're clear. Do we know how many of the kids are enrolled in CPS? No. <laughs> no, 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 no. There's no number? No. Well, so the district isn't exactly being transparent about how many kids have enrolled in schools or what schools they're enrolling in. Uh, the CTU says that they're, you know, it's roughly 1,200 kids um, since the fall. Um, but again, um, you know, we're hearing from these parents and these teachers and principals that a lot of these kids are ending up um, on the west side in schools that aren't really equipped to serve them at this point. Mm. When a student and their family, when they're directed to a school that may not have bilingual teachers, I can't imagine that. How, how do they navigate? Well, so it's really been up to like individuals, people that just want to help out of the kindness of their heart. A lot of teachers, um, they'll say, OK, I know this language. I will help you yeah. get around. I will help you figure things out. So, yeah, like some teachers, they're doing um, 
they'll teach uh, English classes, classes, sorry, uh, for students and for parents um, to sort of help them get up to speed. A lot of community organizations are stepping in, local school council members. Um, like, you know, when I was watching, uh, when I was with Juanito, there was a, a school council member who was sort of there and while his mom waited um, or while his mom got there, you know, she didn't have to do that, but she wanted oh, that to was help. good. Yeah. Any other challenges you're seeing come up for, for students who are migrants? Yeah. Um, attendance has been a big issue from what I understand, just because a lot of kids, um, you know, if, if they already don't feel welcomed in these schools, if they're not um, able to, um, how do I say this? Um, you know, if, if no one there can speak their language, mm-hmm. then they're not really feeling That's sort of hard. part of the community. Yeah. So they're skipping school, they're working, maybe they have to care, you know, help care for their family members. But um, yeah, attendance has been a challenge. Uh, yeah, I, w- I wonder how much of that is initiated by the children themselves, right? Just saying like, I don't want to go today right. because it doesn't feel good when I'm there. Exactly. Right? Mm-hmm. That's tough. We've been talking a lot about challenges today that that migrant families and, and their kids are facing. Right now we're talking about education um, and, and the school staff trying their best to support them. What would you say are resources um, that teachers and, and families are asking for right now, Nareda? Like what what would help them the most? I'm, I'm talking specifically for the people listening right. who might want to reach out. Well, so the teachers are definitely they need bilingual services. They need bilingual curriculum. They need bilingual um, clinicians because a lot of these kids are coming in with like, you know, from these very dangerous traumatic experiences, and so they need that sort that mental health support. Um, and a lot of schools and teachers, principals, they're doing, you know, clothing donations, um, I, you know, trying to get coats in these kids' hands and um, little little things like that. But it's really been, um, from what I understand, just um, all at the local level, just, you know, individuals stepping donations, up Donations. And if you know the language, help. Exactly. Yeah. Nareda Moreno is an education reporter for WBEZ. Thank you, Nareda. Thanks so much.